This is an ABC podcast. Annihilated. Annulled. At the end of the day. Stopped. Swan song. Terminated. That's all, folks. That's it. The end. That voice we just heard, it's pretty familiar, isn't it? Do you recognise it? Yes, it is Siri. Getting kind of existential, ruminating on some words associated with the end of time. And that spellbinding audio is part of a new work of art from Australian artist Callum Morton. Hi, I'm Namilla Benson and Callum is our guest on The Art Show today. Now, if you live in Melbourne and drive a car, you'll know Callum's work. He's the one who made Hotel, that peculiar sculpture on the side of the East Link Freeway. And it's this hotel that's just a tad too small to be the real thing. Buildings and architecture are a big part of Callum's work. And with some help from Siri... Callum's now turned his attention to another building, this time in Sydney. Callum, hey. Hi, Namilla. How are you? Going very well and so excited to talk architecture with you. But first of all, the audio we just heard is part of your new exhibition called View from a Bridge. The exhibition explores the legacy and significance of the Sirius building in Sydney. Remind us the history of that building. Well, the Sirius building was designed uh, in 1978 by the Housing Commission architect, Tal Gophers, and it was built to house communities in the rocks that had been displaced by the government of the time trying to redevelop the rocks. And it was a kind of famous moment in you know, Australia's history, really, because the rocks as we know it today in Sydney, for those who know, you know, is a very popular place. Um, the kind of heritage buildings, uh, the environment there that was what was preserved was all because of the green bands, the union um, strategy, the very powerful construction union back then that used the green bands to block uh, anything that they thought was destroying the the social character of an area, uh, so the community, or was going to block the heritage or affect the environment. So it was a very, it was actually a very early form of ecological activism and quite powerful. They could, they could stop any construction. Anyway, so, so in order for that community not to be displaced, the kind of negotiation, I think, when the government changed hands was to build the serious building. So I was kind of very interested in this building for many years. Um, and then, uh, you know, later finding out about the significance of the building as a way to kind of enable uh, low-income people apartments that had views over the harbour and views over, you know, the opera house and the bridge and so on. So these kind of, you know, if you like, billionaire views, you know, to, to kind of everyone in the community. So it was a, it was a great idea. Um, and then, you know, in more recent times, as, as many people will know, particularly Sydney side, as there has been conflict again, the the government wanted to knock it down and sell um, and sell the site to build luxury apartments because it's worth so much money. And so there was a fight again 
Uh, there was legal action to kind of preserve the building. And in the end, the community were displaced and left, um, but the building remains as a kind of type of memorial and a developer has built that, bought that site and will redevelop it. But, you know, it's not really going to be what it was, obviously. So I was kind of particularly interested in it from that angle and I contacted the friends of Millers Point and they took me to visit, at that time, the last remaining resident uh, was a woman called Myra Dimitriou, and she was living on the top floor. And in her window was taped in LED lights the distress signal SOS, and that used to blink over the rocks at night. And um, the SOS stayed with me as a kind of, you know, it became a type of plea, you know, um, for not just the saving of the building, but, you know, our attempts to save lots of things from the planets and from communities and so on. And so the works in the in the exhibition are these three one-to-one scale replicas of the standard window type in the building, and they're flat against the wall. There's three of them in the room, um, and they have been painted out from the inside, and each one has a sort of uh, – has a coloured light inside it. And they, they each intone a different type of the end. One is a machine that – keeps trying to shut down. One is the doomsday clock, which is currently 100 seconds to midnight and counts from 100 back to zero and starts again. And and the final one is um, Siri's voice. And she's alphabetically going through every form of the end, um, every term for the end that I could think of. Callum, people kind of know you as this guy who explores architecture in your work. But I wonder, is that how you think about the work that you make? Yeah, so, I mean, I am known for, um, and fair enough too, I've certainly repeated it often enough, but I am known for using the architectural form as a kind of container to talk about all sorts of things. So, you know, and I am particularly interested in, you know, urban environments, the urban condition, that's kind of something that I've always been interested in. But I think most artists would tell you that it's very difficult to locate precisely what you do and and what is the kind of core driver to keep you making work. And um, I would say actually at the core of what I do is sort of this notion of uh, disruption or um, erasure or things that are hidden and kind of blindness, you know, related to the unconscious. Those kind of things are, are the things that are actually recurring inside those works. Um, but it is true that I am. I love architecture. I have. I studied architecture briefly. My father's an architect, so there's a kind of eatable drama at work. And in fact, when I started doing using architecture or the mo- architectural model, if you like, you know, I had just done a work in a little artist-run space called First Floor. It was very well known in Fitzroy, and um, you know, I suppose I was in a milieu of artists that were all you know, working with, you know, a kind of return to minimalism and geometric abstraction or conceptual art. Yeah, I wanted to do an object that was kind of sickeningly kitsch and uh, theatrical. So I made this cellar from um, Romero's Night of the Living Dead. I kind of remade it. So that idea of remaking something in the world was there, but I I, I put a motor in it. I um, put a green light in it, uh, the sound of the beast and, uh, you know, some chains in a census. And when you came into the room, it started shaking and rattling and, and screaming you. And, and then I wanted to do something that was the opposite to that kind of highly theatrical work, you know. And so I chose the Farnsworth House 
the Mies van der Rohe Farnsworth house, which I did many versions of subsequently, because it was aesthetically, you know, completely the opposite. It was a kind of, you know, fetishized, modernist, you know, icon, um, immured in its discipline, you know, something, a building that is actually sold, you know, uh, in auction houses, not in the marketplace, you know, this kind of, so a kind of highly rarefied condition that had a fascinating relationship that described a fascinating relationship between public and private space, which is something that's crucial in my work, you know, that relationship and how it changes and it continues to change, you know, our relationship to what is privacy and what is public space. And I mean, look what's happening with the Black Lives Matter, the kind of riots, I mean, all that sort of reoccupation of public space, of tearing down monuments, you know, I'm fascinated by all that. So this, this house, this glass house effectively, you know, had a very kind of curious relationship to those things. And I put inside it, um, it was a soundtrack of a, a, a sort of Lilliputian party, um, and at one point, a woman screams, don't you dare touch me, and five gunshots ring out, and they flare inside the glass house, and there's all this sort of Lilliputian screams and hysteria, and then it sort of dies down, and then it starts again. So it described, you know, the soundtrack, that you, you know, the, the, the people you couldn't see beyond the blinds. It describes, in my work, the kind of idea of the eternal return with the looping of the soundtrack, that it just keeps going and going and going. They loop endlessly. So it's, on the one hand, it's... Um, uh, some apprehension to even contemplate what a kind of end time looks like, even though we feel like we're surrounded and by, you know, different versions of the end all the time and deep kind of uncertainty and fear in the world. But, you know, uh, the idea that that kind of drama has been playing out over and over again. I mean, it's so interesting hearing what you're saying in terms of talking about buildings and structures and, and, you know, the way that buildings are so key to how we engage within a community. And when you're talking about the aesthetics of architecture that, that interests you, I'm really curious. So you're talking more about the form rather than the function? Yeah, I mean, I studied architecture for you know, a year and a bit, and I'd studied urban planning, I think it was town planning it was called, at RMIT before then for six months before switching over. I really wanted to go to art school, but this, I guess, it was part of the sort of eatable drama. And so I didn't, but I didn't, because I didn't finish it, you know, I mean, if you do these courses for a few, a little while, you're sort of, you know, in just the general pool before specialisation. And as you go through, you specialise. And so you start to comprehend a building in complex ways like an art architect does, like how to develop a plan and how it conditions how you live and all those things. So I have a kind of knowledge of those things, but actually um, I remain more interested in the kind of building as an image, if you like. I think I am a sort of strange figure in that sense that people call me a sculptor and I don't even think of myself like that, to be honest. You know, maybe it was because I studied painting for three years, some, but I, I, I'm still kind of obsessed with the image um, and so, and that's why I would do relief, you know, rather than actually describe the space. I have made spaces, but the spaces I make are, you know, like a lot of my work, sort of dreadfully uncomfortable things to be in. And, um, you know, they're compressed and, you know, a bit tortured and torturous. So, you know, um, that's why I say the aesthetics. I read the materiality. I'm a fan of architecture. I mean, if I travel, I go and visit architecture as much I would, as I, I would go to a museum to visit artworks. But it's sort of, I think in a way, and I'm thinking off the top of my head here, but I do, I think, you know, my, I, I think about them uh, as as surfaces as much as anything else. So that's what I mean by the aesthetics. Um, 
you know, so the the truth to materials brutalism that I'm kind of describing, that's a very particular aesthetic, you know, um, that I could recognize, you know, it's raw, rough. I guess I'm, I've, I've always looked at architecture from that period as this sort of emblematic thing from, you know, the recent past that has all of this stuff in it. Like the series building is a perfect example, in fact, because, you know, it is a form of social housing and brutalism or that type of architecture was precisely the form that corresponded to the social ambition of social housing. You know, it, it, it was undecorated, um, beautifully designed, um, the materials were strong, would last forever, um, you know, and it was cost effective. And, you know, you can't separate that kind of materiality from that kind of original ambition in a way. Um, so there's a very particular set of ideas around uh, a type of building like that. And, you know, those ideas, like I'm talking about the end point, I suppose, of those things. But I guess when I say that the building remains as a sort of memorial, it means that the building, because of its aesthetics and its ambition, is still contained within the look of it, what the ambition of that time had been. And so it might mean that at any time in the future, those ideas could kind of return. So that's what I mean by the aesthetics, you know, in a way. I guess aesthetics is complex. It's not just how something looks, but it is very specific. You mentioned that you initially studied architecture and urban planning. So I'm wondering, what was the process then to becoming a professional artist? Well, my grandmother was a painter and she was a tonal realist painter, um, much more than a sort of Sunday painter. She was completely obsessed with it and uh, produced, Mm -hmm. I mean, probably hundreds and hundreds of paintings. I have some of them here, you know, mainly landscape paintings and still lifes and so on. And often I would often go with her, you know, when, you know, she, we had a, she had, they had a beach house down at Aries English and I would often walk with her when I was young and she'd set up her easel and paint something on plein air and, you know, I'd sort of watch her and things. And then later she taught me painting. You know, I always did art at school and, you know, it was my love, you know, I think. And um, going to architecture school was as much about the sort of Oedipal, you know, relationship. Um, my father was a fairly forceful guy. Um, you know, I didn't really know if I liked it or not, but... Um, but, you know, um, I... There are expectations that parents can have. Mm. Yeah, there are expectations, I suppose. There are expectations. He's a pretty tough guy, so, you know, I kind of had a particular relationship with him. I loved him, but it was, you know, he was a, he was a fairly tough guy. So, you know, I, I studied architecture. I enjoyed it, um, but I wanted to go to art school. And in a way, I begged my grandmother to talk to my father to let me go. It was kind of like, it was that sort of oh. thing, you know. And she did. And so I was kind of, that was it. How did that conversation go? No idea. I just know the call <laughs> saying, you know, he's okay with it, you know. Um, I mean, what a bastard, really. But anyway, I, um, you know, it was a kind of um, an unconscious urge to do it. And whether it was the kind of magic of watching her, you know, art always seemed like a magical thing to do to me. I mean, not that architecture isn't, but ar- architecture is, it's conditioned and rightfully so by its kind of relations with the world, um, by its function and and so on. Um, whereas art is kind of, in my head, unfettered by those particular mm. uh, relationships. You can just lose yourself and immerse yourself in a kind of world. And, um, you know, I think I just, I don't know why, but that was the thing that I kind of wanted to do. 
And so did you have art mentors in your life around that time that you were starting to help you kind of make the leap across to entering the arts world? No, no at that time I was, um, you know, I had to go, okay, I, have to, I had to go and sort of, uh, I sort of worked in my bedroom of the place I was living in and put together a folio because I didn't really have a folio. And I did that for six months. So, you know, there were other, I was living with people who were at art school. So I suppose... I don't think they particularly helped me, to be honest. I, I think they were. I think they were more appalled by the stuff I was doing. I hope they're not terrible listening. Terrible self-portraits and things. Um, and um, but you know, I kind of did do that, and I, you know, I put together a lot of work that was pretty shocking, and um, you know, carted it off on the tram to interviews, which was is is uh, you know one of the humiliating but necessary processes one has to go through to go to art school. And, you know, it was rejected for a few places, but I was fortunate enough to get into Fran uh, Victoria College, an art school that no longer exists, sadly. It was absorbed by the VCA during the, the 90s and the Dawkins reforms, but it was a particular school that had a lot of a lot of artists who became very well known because it was sort of, I guess, a sort of B-grade school in a way. It was sort of regarded like that um, next to schools like the VCA, but you had a lot of ambitious and hungry people there and you know, that's really one of the ingredients you need to keep going as an artist, you know, that kind of hunger. So I moved into this complex um, where this artist-run space, Store 5, began, which was the first artist-run space of that period of time, which, you know, began or initiated a, a proliferation of artist-run spaces across the country um, during the kind of economic downturn of the of the 90s in particular, you know, which there was a it was a very affluent art world in the 80s, as you, you might remember, but that all kind of collapsed with the recession. And and in the 90s, what artists did in the kind of absence of kind of support, it was began to create their own contexts for exhibition. And, and so anyway, so Saw 5 started and I sort of ended art school in quite a frustrating way, very quickly, you know, um, moved in with a whole lot of more experienced artists and and uh, it was very intense sort of learning environment and sort of confronting on lots of levels. And, you know, uh, I exhib- started exhibiting quite quickly. I was introduced to new ideas that I hadn't been introduced to at art school, which is kind of interesting, the things that were kind of missing in your education, particularly minimal and, and conceptual art. For some reason they felt like they'd been written out of the curriculum. Um, and the kind of politics of that and the kind of ideas that I was, uh, was working in the book trade, working for a particular book book um, distributor called Manic Exposer who introduced me to introduced me to a whole range of other ideas so um, so that was a kind of mentorship really all those people around you know that community of artists um, you know the people who I worked with in the book trade I worked at readings as well they were kind of became sort of part of the community um, and then there were particular figures around there was Howard Arkley lived um, uh, he had a studio on Chapel Street. I used to watch him wheel his uh, air compressor up and down the street. Uh, yeah, because uh, he he was known for airbrush paintings of suburban homes. Yeah, yeah. So at that stage, I was doing these drawings of commission flats, so public housing, uh, and proposing sort of facade alterations to them. And then it was uh, then I did a whole lot of drawings, which were people's houses that I proposed alterations to, and. Of course, someone like Howard, you know, he had taught me at art school. I had attended his drawing classes. He was a great teacher. So he was already someone, he was at the local pub, the Duke of Windsor, and we'd all go there. And, you know, he was there with Tony Clark and Juan de Villa and Jenny Watson and John Nixon and artists like that. And, uh, you know, he's a very generous person. 
you know, he used to kind of just have a way with him, you know, was non-judgmental. He's very open. He used to say things like, you know, if you have an idea, you've got to make sure you try and do it first before anyone else does it, you know, um, which was. That's great advice. Well, it is great advice, but it was in the period of post-modernity where you were thinking, well, everything's been done, you know. So, um, but it was, I understood it. I understood the urgency that one has as as an artist to try and do something, you know, when you think of it, um, because it might be sort of someone else will do it pretty quickly. Um, Also, just looking at his work. There were friends of mine, Constance Tikos, very uh, good artist, many other listeners will know. Um, He was his assistant at the time, so he had sort of direct contact with the kind of process and I'd hear about how it's processed, um, you know, and he was extraordinary with the airbrush. Airbrush. I mean, if anyone's ever used an airbrush, it's not easy. And he was kind of remarkable at it. But it was more just looking at the coloration of the and the kind of type of work he was doing, the way he used line. Um, he said at one stage, I wanted to be a computer in the early 70s. I wanted to make work like a computer. And, you know, at certain stages of my life, I, you know, I went to America and, I did a Samstag at Art Center College of Design, and and the sole purpose of it was to learn the computer, and learn you know CAD software, and learn all those kind of techniques for producing work. In a way, it, and you know, and that kind of idea rang in my head, wanting to make work that looked untouched by the hand. I don't have that idea anymore, but as an early sort of driver, it's a bit like craft work or something. Why you like craft work? You know, it's a kind of total rupture to every, you know, expectation that one might have about what constitutes being an artist. And, you know, Store 5 was like that. That, that, that. Those group of artists were really critical of everything and made you kind of examine all the kind of conditions under which art is produced, how it's taught, all those things, and and control all the context and understand context properly and so on. So, so yeah, he was one of the many that, you know, with that kind of community that talked to me. I mean, Juan de Villa was there. I had a little bit to do with him. And I think he's an amazing artist, you know, for that kind of critical, incisive injection of theory and ideas into a sort of painterly tradition and so on and radical politics. And, you know, so they were a remarkable group of artists, all of them aesthetically, intellectually and so on. So, you know, I was very fortunate and one is fortunate to kind of move into after art school. It's often a very difficult uh, transition to make, you know, because you're, you know, you, you've received all these kind of ideas and now you have to go on and, and start. You know, it's really the beginning when you leave art school. And, uh, you know, a lot of people just sort of disappeared and stopped doing it because they didn't move into a kind of community that would support them. I moved into a community that was, you know, thriving, ready to go, and I was fortunate enough to kind of be able to participate in what they were doing. You're listening to The Art Show and my guest today is Australian artist Callum Morton. Callum... Let's fast forward to 2007. You were one of three artists selected to represent Australia at the Venice Biennale that year. Now, there's a lot of hype in the art world about Venice and and how significant it is, but how much of a big deal is it to actually get that gig as an Australian artist? Well, I mean, I think it was an enormous opportunity, um, no question. I mean, I've been shortlisted for it a couple of times, I think, previously. I, I, I wanted it. Um, I think it's very important on lots of levels. Um, certainly, it's a great opportunity. It gives you great access to uh, global audiences and, you know, it's in Venice. What can you say? So all those things uh, were amazing. You know, um, 
the commissioner when I did it was John Caldor. He's a remarkable figure. He's got great support to realize a massive project. You know, I rebuilt my the family home that my dad had designed. You know, I did have some success from it. I, you know, unfortunately for me, you know, I had a lot of projects going on in Europe and only one survived after the global financial crisis, which hit straight after. So that was kind of unfortunate, but it did open up a lot of opportunities and, and all that. I will say, though, that I think that Australians, um, uh, you know, are very desperate to be accepted on the world stage in whatever sphere it is. And this is part of the cultural cringe, but, you know, we, you know, it's something that we that we are particularly uh, are particularly good at, you know, known as these kind of cultural tryhards, actually, you know, in some in some some people's uh, eyes and so on. Mm. And it is true that the Australians sort of collect around us, you know, and are kind of desperate for sort of success and acceptance. Um, and you know, other other countries less so. You know, they're kind of I guess they're more comfortable with their place in Europe or their place in the world and so on. And it's a particular condition of who we are, of course. Um, so you know, I mean, I was mindful that I wanted to make a work that was just another. I mean, okay, oh, uh, sure, it was an incredibly ambitious work and so on, but it was another work in the sort of development of the work. You know, it was a kind of related to these earlier projects. I did a project called Babylonia at Acre, which was uh, the island from Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura with um, uh, the corridor from The Shining inside it, which now was acquired by Mona. I'd done these kind of large-scale immersive installations that had these kind of different worlds inside them and so on. And so it was the kind of another iteration along the way, and I was mindful of wanting to do you know, another work in that series and just kind of do a good job, you know, rather than attempting to kind of shoot the lights out and become some sort of supersonic superstar. You know, I wanted all those things, but, um, but you know, trying to be a kind of bit of a realist about it. So good opportunity, but maybe one needs to be a bit more kind of um, – uh, less hysterical about the opportunity. I, I want to talk about public art because one of your sculptures that I found quite confronting actually uh, called Monument Number 32, Hell to Shelter. Can I get you to describe that? Because it was a huge sculpture of a man that looked a lot like Donald Trump. And I guess I, I want to know what prompted you to make this particular work. Yes. <laughs> it's actually just come back, that work, from um, Ballarat. It was shown, it's been sort of touring to various places. I think it's finished touring now um, because uh, it was shown outside the Ballarat Art Gallery and it was attacked pretty severely by the locals. So it's a, it's a sculpture that fits on the back of a truck. It's the a kind of emergent head of Donald Trump, um, you know, a comic view of him, the, the, you know, the Buffon blonde hair, the eyes and the orange skin and so on. Um, yeah, sort of half his face sort of emerging out of the concrete. And then around the other side, uh, there's a scooped out seating area that is filled with paintings of flames, you know. So it's a very literal work. It's a very ugly work. And I suppose, you know, it's a type of architecture. You know, I'm interested in you know, shelters and bus shelters and that, that the sort of architecture of the everyday, you know, there was that kind of scale to it. But it's also, I'm, I've always been interested in all these other forms that exist alongside the visual arts and the kind of pure form of it. So, you know, production design and theatre design is kind of one part of it. 
and the architecture or the kind of aesthetics of the the fun fair or the theme park is another. Also the the aesthetics of the parade and the parade float or the protest march, you know, the kind of provisional mocking of, you know, political figures or so on. So um so I you know it is it is in that sort of idiom and that that aesthetic has been in my work in lots of ways. So it belongs inside that. And uh, the original context for the work was at Barangaroo as part of Sydney Contemporary. And, in fact, it's interesting because I haven't thought about it, but that is in the rocks, on the other side of the rocks, you know, where, where Sirius is. And Barangaroo is the kind of the, exactly what they wanted to do to Sirius. It's the kind of it's, there's going to be a casino there, so it's the site of, you know, capital greed. And then there is, you know, all these residential buildings. It's an amazing sort of precinct. You know, Sydney do know how to do urban precincts, you know, very well. But it is sort of dominated by the kind of spectre of real estate development. And so I suppose that kind of conditioned my thinking. I was wondering what type of – I wanted to do a shelter like this that could drop in quickly and I tried a number of different things and I was starting to, and I had been doing a number of works that was using the image of these kind of hard right figures. I'd done a work in in Denmark as part of European capital culture, which was a large, a huge rock um, that had uh, faces on four sides of Trump, Putin, Assad and uh, Kim Jong-un on it. And that it was, a, it was, you know, called Sisyphus and was a rock that rolled down the hill and rolled itself back up the hill interminably. So I had been playing with that, these idea of the heads, and this is sort of ongoing, I suppose. I've been, if you see my show in Sydney, the room next door, there has a number of drawings in it. And, you know, I have this series called Monsters Ball of different type of kind of monsters and these kind of figures are included. So it's part of the way of sort of thinking through it. And, you know, it seemed particularly appropriate in that site. It has since um, gone to other sites. You know, it's uh, went up to Home of the Arts in, on the Gold Coast and then before it went to Ballarat. But Ballarat, the Victorians in Ballarat, they uh, they really took a shine to it and all the skater kids smashed it to bits. So, um, which is fine. I mean, that's kind of, um, I'm surprised it hadn't happened earlier. You know, it's an ugly work for ugly times is what I've said. And I don't mind that kind of ugliness you know, uh, you know the aesthetics, the aesthetics of that. So, so yeah, I'll probably cut it up and film it, as, as or do something to it to end it, or turn it into something else. It was really interesting to me that you called or you used the word monument. Why use this really quite specific word to um, to name that particular work? Well, if you look at all the monuments. Um, you know, I've done probably 40 monuments. I mean, I, I, I'm te- I tend to call everything a monument these days, but they're all conditioned by or linked by the fact that they're all completely unmonumental or they're sort of anti-monuments, you know. So sometimes they're monuments to very pathetic things. I've done monuments to my bank balance, which was terrible at the time. I've done, you know, monuments to uh, buildings that are being destroyed I've done monuments that are collapsed walls. Uh, I've done monuments that are, you know, shop awnings and so on. So all this kind of uh, detritus or or, the, or the, the drive-in screens, you know, and so on. So equally, this is an anti-monument in a sense like you would never want it to be a monument to anything. It's uh, it's made provisionally. It comes off a truck. It's It's like fiberglass on foam. So it's the opposite to something that's permanent, if you like. Yeah, so that's that's that. 
So is the final process in creating a work like Helter Shelter, do you, do you park yourself somewhere nearby and watch how the public responds to it? Is that something that you do? Oh, you know, I mean, from the early days of showing an artist run spaces, which is <laughs> the kind of torturous thing of having to mind your own exhibition, which I used to hate. I mean, even in the early days, I used to go and just sort of hide in the cafe downstairs on Chapel Street while people came to the show because I just couldn't stand it. Stand it. And I mean, I've had sort of moments like that. I remember an art fair many years ago where I had a solo show with Anna Schwartz. I almost had a sort of breakdown. I was so, I couldn't stand the kind of glare of the lights. And, you know, I had a very funny incident actually in that art fair where I was talking to someone and a guy came up, didn't know who I was, in front of my work. And uh, he said to this guy, uh, I was with. He said, "I don't know about this Callum Morton work. It's so postmodern, so pomo." And uh, and I kind of laughed and I said, "Yeah, I know what you mean, you know." And, and, but um, you know, and I was of course mortified. But that is the condition of art fairs. I mean, one thing about art fairs is people going to walk around art fairs like it's a you know shopping mall and they go nut nut crap nut. You know, it's very very kind of alarming for artists who have spent all this time thinking about something and suddenly they're in the glare. So I don't hang around. I mean, I like seeing photos later or something when I'm sort of at a safe distance. Mm-mm. But it was controversial and, you know, there were people that did take issue with it. I'm wondering, because you mentioned Black Lives Matter uh, and the protests and rallies that are happening around the world right at this moment. What what do you think about people defacing or, in this case, actually removing public monuments or sculptures? Because uh, it's happened in the UK. We've seen it in the news. Uh, a statue was pulled down commemorating a 17th century slave trader. What what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Well, well, it's remarkable that a sculpture of Edward Colston you're talking about, um, you know, who uh, was chairman of a company that exported 100,000 slaves from Africa, you know, many of them dying in the bowels of the ships. I mean, it's remarkable that in this day and age that sculpture still exists. And I think, you know, I think most the most surprising thing would be that why in the hell is it there? I think most people would, would be shocked at that. So, you know, I think there has been lots of uh, motions and attempts to try and get rid of it over the years. And, look, I mean, I think it's a fascinating image uh, ripping down a sculpture like that. I'm fascinated by images of protest that then deface the monument because it's part of the symbolic order, you know, and the symbolic order is so imp- so powerful, particularly when you're trying to uphold something as pernicious as colonialism. So, I mean, there is something about the kind of brutality of violence that sweeps over a kind of mob of people and they do things and it's kind of thrilling that they would suddenly do that. And there is a long history of kind of ripping down monuments and so on. I mean, I suppose that's what happened to the Trump. You know, it got got attacked as well because it's this kind of figure. So you can't really stop that urge of people and that kind of direct urge thing. And look, you know, I like it, you know, I, I, I like it. And uh, I'm not going to kind of defend whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. You know, I am very interested in this idea that a kind of public activism can just will change when it just won't happen. And so I completely support that. Um, where's hell to shelter now? Where's where's the Trump head sitting now? Uh, he's He comes back here to the studio. I have a studio with about 11 other artists and um <laughs> how do they feel about it <laughs> well I, I just sort of 
didn't quite get the scale of it right. It can't get up the corridor into my studio because the nose is too big. So it sits down in the kitchen and it's a sort of seating area for everyone. And, um, you know, they've always all been quite accepting of it. But um, when it came back recently, one, one, one person was particularly pissed off that it had returned. So, I, um, I, you know, it's sitting there now. and I think I'm going to cut the nose off and uh, bring it into the studio and then sort of work out how to dismember it or reuse it. <laughs> Do you think you'll you'll make it into a public, uh, you know, like can there be public participation? Well, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, you should just go and get put it in a room with a whole lot of baseball bats and just get a whole lot of kids to come and smash it up and film it as a work, which you could do. I mean, I guess that relates back to that conversation we just had of just, you know, defacing something and destroying something and what that signifies. But I kind of like the idea at the moment, A, that it, I cut it apart really precisely, really kind of dismember it as a kind of symbol and maybe I would film that or or perhaps um, perhaps I just remake it as something else altogether, which is kind of interesting to do, but to me as well. So, look, at the moment I'm sick of looking at it. It is bloody ugly. I don't know why I did it. And so um, uh, I'm going to cut it up uh, sufficiently to store it and think about it. I mean, often with my work, particularly, you know, I use polystyrene, polyurethane, you know, a lot of work, and I do recycle them. I and this stuff, it's napalm. You can't recycle it. The only way I've been able to recycle it is to cut everything off it back to back to grade, and then they they can put it in um, concrete slabs uh, as kind of filler, and that's the only way to recycle it because the stuff never just never never goes. It can float in space for eternity. So you know, recycling it uh, in some way is really important. It'd be really interesting, actually, if you were to put it somewhere. Just even getting um, young people to to respond to it in some way, because I'm always so taken, and especially seeing from the rallies uh, that took place over the weekend, just how vocal and how much clarity the younger generation has about politics at the moment. And like, I I did not have that confidence when I was their age, and I certainly didn't have that sense of. Purpose or clarity, either in terms of what my response was to political figures or, you know, political leaders. Well, I think we. Li- I mean, I went to the march as well, and I, I agree with you. I think it's kind of remarkable that activism and the clarity. And I think it is clear. I mean, we're living in a, we're living in a particular age. You know, that it's not complex. You know, there's lots of complexity in the world. Things are complex, but it's not complex. What creates oppression and what uh, creates, you know, deaths in custody or, you know, systemic racism, it's, it's, it's clear, you know. So I think, you know, uh, activists need to be clear with their messaging. So, uh, you know, I totally agree with you. I think that is kind of remarkable and inspiring to see, you know, actually. Um, you know, if, if you put Donald Trump, I mean, maybe I could give it to Moomba or give it to give it to the protesters. They could do something and turn it into a car and drive it around and smash it into <laughs> You know, I mean, it could be like that. You know, you could make sense of something. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And with that image, Callum Morton, thank you so much for speaking with us on The Art Show. It was a pleasure. Thanks for talking to me, Nuala. Australian artist Callum Morton man. Callum's new exhibition, View from a Bridge, is on at the Roslyn Oxley Nine Gallery in Sydney until the 4th of July. And you can head to our website for more info.
time now for This Place, which is an artist series from the ABC featuring some of Australia's best Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists sharing stories about their work and their country. And today we're off to Darnley Island in the Torres Strait to meet artist Ken Tidey. Dancing is a big part of Ken's arts practice and he makes these majestic and incredibly beautiful masks and headdresses that are worn during the ceremonial dances that take place in his community. Here's Ken to tell us more. Hello, my name is Ken Taide. I'm in Cairns, but I'm originally from Danley Island. I'm Eru Kebile. It's a language, Eru Kebile, Danley Island boy. I'm proud to be one of them. Daniel, about 280 kilometers, northeast of Thursday Island, close to Murray Island. It's only two eastern islands there, and uh, central, York Island, Yam Island. There's about 15 islands, little islands outside Torres Strait. Where I'm from, I'm from the eastern, those other islands, they western and central. Like all my family from Danley, my father taught everyone to dance. Because he's a choreographer himself, he's one of the best. He composed a lot of songs. I can't change anything. My father put a word, I have to sing the same word all the time. It's about Danley Island. Wayeru, it means my home. Karaged, my place and Mara and your place, mine and yours. Wayeru, Karagin, Mara. It's a beautiful song and I think of my dad. Dance is very important. Sometimes I can describe dance through my artwork. Most of my dancing where my father composed, my artwork will represent that. The music, the sound, the singing, the drum, the drum beats. When you listen to this thing, you think way back. Are you grandfather, your great-grandfather, your grandmother? Sometimes you in tears. It's always like this. My culture is always with me when I celebrate all the time. That's why you see a lot of my work is different. Right now, I'm doing my totem. I'm a head shark. I think it's a very special totem. I don't think anyone ever done it. You've done it in a different way. This one I've got here, six meters, I'm a head shark, six meters. So if you see that, don't try and do it because it's going to be very difficult for you to do it. Only I can do it, not you. What I do, you can do too, but do your own totem. This totem is mine. Well, to create my artwork, I used to use a lot of bamboo. There's yellow bamboo, green bamboo, black bamboo. I use more black bamboo. It's beautiful, you don't have to paint it. You just put a varnish over it and the color stays like that. But you gotta know how to treat the bamboo. If you don't, don't touch it. 
My artwork is very important. I do it every day. I never stop. I'm up in the morning. That's what I do. And you give me all the time, give me something to do in the morning. And you can say, oh, I'm tired. No, you have to go and do it. Otherwise, you forget what you do. I come out every day, I got my own tools. Any space, I can find a space and I'll work, I do anything. Which is good, keep me fit, not to worry me. When Lord give you vision to do anything, you got the tools, you go for it. That's why I never stop doing artwork. I'm gonna go until the day I can't do anymore. But I thank the Lord for that. Artist Ken Tiday speaking about his home of Darnley Island in the Torres Strait and his arts practice and community. And that interview was recorded for the ABC iView series called This Place. And it was produced by Mark Iden and Maddie Whitford. You're listening to The Art Show with Namilla Benson. If you heard the show last week, you might recall Tolai artist Lisa Hilly spoke about the significance of bilums in PNG culture. Bilums are traditional woven bags that come in a variety of sizes and colours, and they're kind of like the global international connector and identifier for people from Papua New Guinea. Now, from time to time on the show, I like to share the stories behind particular works of art that have moved me. And a number of years ago, I came across this amazing woven dress made with the same technique used to make bilums. And this dress has capped sleeves, it's bone coloured, very elegant. And it's by PNG master bilum weaver, Auntie Vicky Kinai. The name of the work is First Contact, and it was inspired by a story Vicky's grandmother told her of seeing white people for the first time when they came to her village in Mount Hagen in the early 1950s. Who were these Westerners that arrived in her grandmother's village? I called up Auntie Vicky to find out. You know, the first white people that went to my area were the missionaries. My people heard about them, but they actually didn't see the white people. They heard, like, their white skin, their hair is like their eyes are blue. Like, they heard about them, but they never saw them. So when they got them, when the people in the village got the message that two missionaries will come to the village, it was exciting for them. Was your grandmother scared when she saw them? Oh, yeah, she was really scared. So what happened was um, they arrived in the village and uh, people didn't see them as they arrived because they came at night and they stayed in the men's house in the gathering place, that sing-sing place, you know, we call sing-sing. So the missionaries came and stayed in, in that particular house. In the morning, people shouted out saying the missionaries came, so come and shake hands with him and come and ever greet them. So everyone came. And um, my grandmother said, people were scared to go near them. They were sitting down. So from the chest down, they couldn't see uh, what they were wearing or what they looked like. But they, from the chest up, uh, they could see their neck and their face and like their, 
and there was something hanging down on their shoulder. And um, she said a couple of people went and sat down, but herself and some other people, they went and stood behind some bananas and they looked through because they, they were a little bit scared because they was really white and their eyes were blue. And she said, I felt like they were looking through me. And uh, what I could tell was that they had things hanging down their side of their face. There's something hanging down uh, over their shoulders on both sides. And um, in that instance, it reminded her of the stories of, um, it's like a legend. Um, Do not stay alone in the house or play alone because there's a lady just goes around with a balloon, gets the child, and she puts it in the balloon and takes her away. So do not stay alone in the house or stay by yourself somewhere. You need to stay with an adult or stay with other children all the time. So my grandmother said instantly she remembered that story and said, oh, maybe in that story we talked about you know, this lady with a billum, maybe this, this, the person looked like this. Probably those two, you know, missionaries sitting there might have something like a billum hanging on their back. So while she was looking at them, she was imagining the story. So she told me this story after, and the billum I've done, yeah, it's called, not belong but the dress, it's called first contact because I thought about my grandmother's story. And then that's the first thing that came to my mind. I, I need to make, you know, this dress that is the story of my grandmother told me. So that's how I came up with the idea to make this belong. So tell us about your grandmother's description of what the missionaries were wearing that inspired your bilum dress? Okay, so the the inspiration is that she said maybe they have ears that came down, their sh- it was resting on their shoulders. I, I know she now that she was referring to the air that came down really long and it was on their shoulder. And the air that the hair, yeah, right. the air yeah. that they had, it was long and it went down. And so in this dress that I made, I used the billum stitch, which I call the figure eight. And um, it's long and it's, uh, it starts from the neck down and it goes all the way. It's like a wedding dress. I, in front, you know, it comes up to the knee, but at the back, it's really long. Because I was imagining when she said, maybe they have no legs or maybe they have a tail, you know. At the back, got another, it's, it's like a hood, but a billum hanging down at the back. And, and then uh, on the collar, collar of the, I also uh, made a collar. And on both sides, I made it hang down from the front. It shows like she, how she described they have long hairs hanging down. It's so, so that's it's that's just, their long hair hanging down. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And she said, 
I felt they have long hairs hanging down. That's so beautiful that you were able to, you know, recreate this dress based on your grandmother, your boo-boo's stories. And I really love that you run billum-making workshops here in Australia. Why is it important for you, Vicky, to share this creative tradition with non-Papua New Guineans? Well, living in Australia, I I see people um, doing, you know, practicing their own culture. And some people um, talk about, you know, where they come from and what's important to them. So for me, I see Bilum as as an important thing in my life, as any other Papua New Guinean. Every Papua New Guinean has a Bilum in their house, and the same with me. So why I'm teaching Bilum is is a way of me showing other people what is important to me because I don't just go and, you know, show them how to make a Bilum. I tell them the stories, why it's important. I tell them it's very cultural. This is how we survived. This is our survival thing. It's part of our culture. And then I teach them just the basics. You know, it's very difficult to make a bilum. So what people appreciate is the stories I tell them. Not the bilum, but the story. Because the story about bilums in Papua New Guinea, it's the women's story. Bilum signifies life of a woman in Papua New Guinea. And this is what I tell people when I run the workshops. Master Billum Weaver and auntie in the PNG community, Vicky Kenai, speaking about her Billum dress called First Contact, which was inspired by her grandmother's story of seeing white people in her village for the first time. Well, time flies when you're having fun and that is it for the show. Thank you so much to the Art Show team, Anna Frey-Taylor, Rhiannon Brown and the incredible sound engineers at RN. Don't forget this weekend on RN is the big weekend of books so you can head to the RN website for more info. I'm Namilla Benson. I look forward to your company again next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.